Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you, so glad to greet all of you and welcome you to our 1045 service today, you folks across the street at the video venue and everybody joining us online. If you got a Bible, I want you to take it and turn to the Gospel of Luke. And when you get to the Gospel of Luke, I want you to find the 17th chapter and just hold that ready for just a moment. And as we begin, let me just tell you or perhaps remind you that we're in a sermon series called What If? It's just a very simple title. What If? We've been talking about uh, how we can experience a more dynamic life by simply putting some of the most fundamental truths and principles of the Bible into practice, and we've been doing it under the heading of this what if question. And so we began by talking about what if I were more thankful, and then we talked about what if I took control of my thoughts. Last week, we talked about what if I took control of my words. I hope you were here. That was a very powerful and relevant message for all of us. This morning, we're going to continue by asking the question, what if I had greater faith? And I want to tell you right from the beginning, I want to be really honest and transparent with you this morning, that I feel a certain amount of anxiety with this message. I do. And the reason why is there can be some very real tension in our lives when it comes to understanding the role that our faith plays in experiencing what we, what we might call a dynamic or a victorious Christian life. And here's why I say that. You know, the Bible makes some pretty outrageous statements regarding faith. It really does. In fact, there's one in our text today. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Luke 17. And verse 6 of that chapter gives us an example of one of those outrageous statements. We'll put it up on the screen so we can all see it. We'll read it in a minute in its entirety, our passage, but let's just look at verse 6 for just a moment. In verse 6, this is Jesus speaking, and He tells His disciples one day, He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, everybody look up here. That is a pretty bold statement about faith, right? Everyone say, right. That really is. And here's the deal. There have always been and there are today Bible teachers who take verses like that and use them to teach that nothing, everyone say nothing, nothing is impossible for you and me if we simply have enough faith, if we have a big enough faith. And so they carry out that teaching and they say, if you have a need in your life, whatever it might be, maybe it's a need for a healing. Maybe you have some kind of sickness or disease. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's even terminal. Maybe it's not you, but it's somebody that you know and love. Or if you have uh, a marriage that needs to be restored, or if you have a wandering prodigal son or daughter that needs to come home or something like that, and you ask for that, you seek God's assistance, His help, His deliverance in that, and you don't get what you ask for, then the problem is you didn't have enough faith, or your faith wasn't big enough, or your faith wasn't great enough. And oftentimes, and I want you just to hear out everything I have to say today before you make any conclusions, oftentimes we're left with an overwhelming sense of spiritual guilt and an overwhelming sense of spiritual failure in our lives because we didn't get the answer that we prayed for. And over the years, I've had more than just a few conversations with people who were sick that had some well-meaning Christian come along and say something like, sickness is never the will of God for anyone, and you won't be sick. You can get healing from your sickness if you just have a big enough faith to believe. If you just believe strong enough, then you can be healed. 
But as I was writing those words this week, I thought about specifically people that I've known over the years in every church that I've served, their faces and their names came to my mind, some of them, some of the strongest Christians that I've ever known, and yet they didn't get the healing that they prayed for. I can remember, it's been almost 40 years ago now, when my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had known for a long, long time that she had a, a large lump in one of her breasts, and she was afraid to say anything. I think she was just a part of a generation that was so afraid of cancer that she just wanted to try to avoid it, so she never said anything. And by the time she told my mother about this, and they took her to the doctor, it was really too late, and the cancer was pretty far advanced. She had some pretty radical procedures, surgeries, and treatments in the beginning, but there wasn't a whole lot that doctors can do. And by the time she got to the end of her treatment, which was now just one experimental drug after another, there wasn't a whole lot of hope. And she would sit up in her apartment at night, and she would watch television. She would watch television preachers at night, and they would talk about healing that would come from faith. They would talk about, you know, sowing seeds of faith and receiving whatever it is that you ask for. And she did all those things. She prayed. She sent money to television ministries. She did all those things. She didn't get her healing. She was the strongest Christian that I think I've ever known. She's a spiritual matriarch of our family. I think I've told you her story on a number of occasions. And yet when she came to the end of her life, there was a period of time when she just had serious doubts about her own faith because she didn't get the healing that she prayed for. So how are we to understand this teaching from the Scriptures? We don't ignore it. We don't ignore anything that Jesus says. We embrace everything that He says. But how are we to understand it really in our lives on a practical level? There's a great story in the Gospel of Mark in the ninth chapter, don't turn there, about a father who had a son who had an evil spirit. He was possessed by an evil spirit, and it did horrible things to this boy, and in desperation, he brought him to Jesus one day, and he found Jesus' disciples, but do you remember the story? Jesus wasn't there at the time when they found the disciples. And so they asked the disciples if they could help, and they tried, but they failed. Do you remember that? And then about that time, Jesus shows up. Now, I'm going to read this story to you from Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. I'm going to put the, the last few verses of this text up on the screen. I want you just to listen for a moment. This is what Mark writes. He says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing, arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a great story. And while there are a lot of different things we can learn from a story like that, there are two things that really stand out to me in the context of what we're talking about today. Finally, or excuse me, first, did you notice that when Jesus finally gets face-to-face -face with this boy and his father, and he gets ready to provide the healing that the father seeks, as a part of their conversation in the latter part of verse 22, 
The father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a strong declaration of faith on the part of that father? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a very weak statement of faith. I mean, I read the story and I think that this father probably believed that Jesus would try to help. He's just not completely sure that Jesus could help. And so Jesus looks at him and says, if you can, and even though it's phrased as a question, it's really more of an exclamation. He goes on to say, everything is possible for him who believes. And the father says, and I love this part. We should embrace this part of the story. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know what that is? That's just honesty. That's the father basically saying to Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your power. But here's the truth. The honest truth is I still have a lot of doubt in my life. And I'm willing to admit that. So is my faith enough? Is what I'm offering enough? And thankfully in this story... With Jesus, it was enough, and he was able to heal that boy. The second thing that stands out to me that we learn from this story, and if, listen, if you really, honestly, if you don't remember anything else that I say to you today, I want you to remember this one thing. So write it down in your notes if you're taking notes. Here we go. You don't have to have a perfect faith to receive a blessing from God. You don't. You don't have to have a perfect faith. You don't have to have perfect faith to receive a blessing from God. In fact, I'm going to take that one step further. Some might disagree with this, and that's okay, but I believe Jesus never expects perfect faith from us. He expects imperfect faith because that's who we are, and that's all we have. He knows that. Listen, if you and I had to have perfect faith in order to have a prayer answered or in order to experience any kind of blessing from God, then we would be left wanting all the time because none of us are perfect. And we have moments when we have better faith than others, I'm sure, but the truth is our faith is wanting much of the time. And listen to me close. While I believe, and I believe this with all my heart, while I believe that all things that fall within the will of God are possible to those who believe, did you hear what I just said? I believe that all things, everyone say all things, all things are possible. All things that fall within the realm of the will of God are possible to those who believe. I also believe from the teaching of the Bible and from the experience of life that not everything falls within the will of God. Here's the truth. This is the way our God chooses to exercise His sovereignty in the world. He allows pain, and He allows suffering, and He allows death. Do we always understand it? Absolutely not. Does it cause us to have a crisis of faith sometimes when we come face to face with it? Sometimes it does. We have questions and concerns. We wonder why God is doing the things He's doing or why He's not doing the things that we want Him to do. But here's the deal. This is how God chooses to exercise His sovereignty. He allows pain, and He allows suffering, and He allows death. Why? Why? That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? We don't have time to talk about all those things. But it's in those moments that we trust Him. All things that fall within the will of God are possible to those who believe, but not everything falls within the will of God. And that's my best explanation, friends, this morning for this tension that often comes with faith and this teaching that if you simply have enough faith or you have a big enough faith that you can have whatever it is that you ask for. And that brings me back to Luke chapter 17. Remember, our question this morning is, what if I had greater faith? Now, this isn't the easiest thing to talk about, folks, and I can't, I can't stand up here this morning and tell you that I got all this figured out completely because I don't. 
I'm still growing in my understanding of all this, but I do think we can use this text to learn a little bit about how to have a greater faith in our lives, what it means to have greater faith. So if you've got your Bibles open there, wherever you are, stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do as we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service each week. And you follow along. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Luke 17. Our emphasis is on verses 5 and 6. Jesus said to His disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Okay, there it is. You can be seated. May God add his blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. What's happening here in Luke chapter 17? Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's teaching them about the kind of spiritual qualities that need to be reflected in their lives. And in the middle of that teaching, in verse 5, the disciples look at him and basically say, give us more faith. We need more faith. They say, increase our faith. And that's when Jesus responds with his instruction about faith in verse 6. Now, why do they ask for more faith? Why? Why in the middle of the teaching would they ask for more faith? I think it's really a simple explanation. I think as Jesus taught them about all the things that need to be reflected in their lives, they began to feel pretty inadequate. And they thought, I don't think I can do this on my own. I need help. I need more faith. I mean, Jesus had just told them about the power of forgiveness and that when somebody sinned against them, if they asked for forgiveness, then they should forgive them. And he said, if they do it seven times in a day and seven times come back to you and say, forgive me, you've got to forgive them. Now, we all understand how hard forgiveness is, Right? And I think they heard that kind of teaching. They thought, I can't do this on my own. I need some help. And so they said, increase our faith. Give us more faith. And Jesus seizes that opportunity to teach them what great faith really looks like. And so what I've got down here is I've got three things that I believe Jesus teaches about great faith that we can all understand and apply to our lives this morning. So if you take a note, write down next to number one. Let's dive right in and we'll do this quickly. The first thing that I've got written on my notes is it's not all about the size of your faith. Write that down. It's not all about the size of your faith. Let's be honest, there are probably many of us who are here listening to me wherever you might be, and I'll put myself at the top of the list today, okay? I'll lead things off. There are many of us here today who have had times in our lives when we've asked God for more faith. In some way, some form, some fashion, we've asked God to increase our faith. And our reasoning is pretty much like the disciples. Our reasoning is we think if I have more faith, I could do a better job living the Christian life. If I had more faith, I could believe God for greater things in my life. But here's what we need to understand. It's not always about more. More is not always the issue. It's not always about the size of our faith. And this might sound odd, but I want you to listen close. I think much of the time we don't need a bigger faith, we just need a better understanding of how faith works. And I'm going to say it like this. We need what might be called congruent faith. 
congruent faith. Now, that's not a word that you hear very often. It's not a word we use in everyday conversation. The word congruent basically means agreeing or corresponding. And so when I say we need congruent faith, that means we need to learn how to practice our faith in every area of our life. And the first area is we need to make sure we make the right choice whenever some situation comes in our lives where our faith is challenged, we need to make sure we make the right choice about what we're going to believe. When I was growing up in Sunday school, one of my favorite Bible stories was the story of David and Goliath. I'm sure many of you would say the same thing. Those of us, it's such a wonderful heritage to have been able to grow up in church and be taught the great stories of the Bible since you were a child. I'm so thankful that my kids had that opportunity, my grandkids have that opportunity. Listen, if you didn't have that opportunity, you can still learn those stories and they can be just as much a blessing to you today as they were when you were a child. But I love that story. Let's just use our imagination for a moment and imagine that we are taken back to somewhere around 1,000 B.C. and we're standing on the, uh, the edge of the Valley of Ella where that battle took place. And we look down and we see this giant who appears to be about nine feet tall and he's fully armored from head to toe. And we see him approaching this ruddy little shepherd boy. He's got the unmistakable clothes of a shepherd and all he has in his hand is a slingshot. And we're standing there watching this battle as it's about to begin. Let's pretend in that situation that we had to put money on one side or the other. Here's the question, who are you going to choose? Now, the answer is easy for us today because we know how the story ended, but let's, let's just imagine that that's not the case. And when we were there, when it happened, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know who was going to win. So which side would you be inclined to choose? Here's my point. Every single day in our lives, we face these kinds of questions. Every day, we have to choose. Everyone say choose. We have to choose where we're going to put our faith. When a problem comes into our life, when a challenge comes into our life, when a circumstance comes into our life that's bigger than us, we have to choose where we're going to put our faith, what and who we're going to believe in, and we have to make a definite choice. We have to say, this is my choice, this is the right choice, and I'm willing to stake my entire life on it. That, friends, is the first step to having great faith. Having great faith is not always about the size of your faith. It begins with what you choose to believe in. Listen to me. I mean, let's just go back to thinking about verse 6 for a moment. If having great faith were all about the size of your faith, then Jesus wouldn't have said in verse 6, if you have faith as small as a what? Mustard seed. A mustard seed, very small, not the smallest seed in the world, but tiny. You can put it in the palm of your hand and it's almost nothing. It is a tiny, tiny seed. If it was all about the size of your faith, Jesus wouldn't have said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Having great faith is not always about the size of your faith. Now, having said that, we certainly need to have a growing faith. I think we infer that also from Jesus' use as of a mustard seed as is an example of faith. We need to have a growing faith, but it's not always about the size of your faith. Let's think back about that story. Think back to that story about the father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and he said, if you can help us, please take pity on us, and Jesus did that, but the man was honest about his faith, and he says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. After Jesus performed that miracle and cast that evil spirit out of his son, do you think that father's faith was greater then than it was before? Absolutely. 
And for the rest of his life, it was greater. And this is the reality of our lives. We've got to have a growing faith every time we encounter God, every time we experience God, every time we, we grow in our relationship with God. Our faith needs to grow. But Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, a tiny mustard seed, you can say to this tree, be uprooted, and it will obey. It's not always about the size of your faith. It's how you use it. And it begins... And this is part of having congruent faith. It begins with what you choose to believe in when the problems, when the trials, when the circumstances come into your life. Let me just try to make it practical for a moment. When you're faced with a problem in life, the question for you is, do I believe that this problem is all-powerful or do I believe that God is all-powerful? Which will you choose? Where will you put your faith? When your past starts to haunt you, the question is, do I believe that all the mistakes, all the failures, and all the sins of my past have the power to destroy my life forever, or do I believe that the grace of God is greater than all those things? Which will you choose? Where will you put your faith? When sickness comes into your life or the life of somebody that you love, the question is, do I believe in the power of sickness, or do I believe in God's power to heal? Which will you choose? Where will you put your faith? Every day, we have opportunities to make choices of faith, and our choices reveal what we really believe. And let's just be honest. Sometimes we can say we have faith in God, but when we look at the problem, the problem seems a lot bigger than God to us in the moment. You ever been there? I mean, that's just the reality of being imperfect people in a sinful, fallen world sometimes. And so this is where it all begins. We may say, for example, that we believe in the sovereignty of God. That is to say that God is in control of all things at all times. We can, we can say we believe in the sovereignty of God, that He's always in control, that He has the ability, like Paul says in Romans 8, 28, to take all things and work them together for our good when we trust Him. But then, when a problem comes, we absolutely fall apart. And so the question is, what do we really believe? Do I believe in the sovereignty of God, or do I think any problem has the ability to destroy my life? What do we believe? You want to have a great faith? then you start by making the right choice about what you believe. And when you make the choice, you say, I'm staking my life on it. I'm not going to waver. That's what it means, first of all, to have congruent faith that you believe in what you say you believe. Right down next to number two. The second thing, you want to have a great faith? Then don't miss the significance of words when it comes to faith. Don't miss the significance of words when it comes to faith. We know the Bible has a lot to say about the words we speak. I just preached an entire message about that last week. Our words matter, but listen to me. Our words matter especially when it comes to faith. Look back at verse 6 for just a moment. As I told you, this is really the key verse in our text. When the disciples asked Jesus for more faith, this is what he said. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can, listen to this, say... He said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, Jesus, that's not the only time he said something like this. Let me give you another example. This is what Jesus said to the disciples one day, and this is recorded in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. He says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says, says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. 
Now, those again, those are some bold statements about faith. And by the way, let me just ask you this question. Do we think that Jesus is, is really literally telling us here that if you have enough faith, you can actually move a tree or actually move a mountain? You know, we can have different beliefs on that, but let me just tell you what I think. I, I really think that Jesus is using hyperbole, hyperbole here. He's speaking proverbially, pro, proverbially here. He's talking metaphorically. I think that for a couple of reasons, because Jesus does that. He's done that other times in his ministry. He's used strong language. That's hyperbole, strong, exaggerated language to make a point. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your right eye caused you to sin, what did he say to do? Gouge it out. He said, if your right hand caused you to sin, what did he say to do? Cut it off. Now, do we take that literally? If we took that literally, we'd all be a bunch of handicapped people sitting here this morning trying to digest this sermon. That's the truth, right? I mean, this is what Jesus does. He uses hyperbole sometimes. He uses strong, exaggerated language when he wants to make a strong point. What I think Jesus is really doing here is he's just using some strong language to tell us that even small faith, because remember, it's not always about the size of your faith. He's using strong language to tell us that with, even with small faith, we can do unimaginable things. But beyond that, I want you to notice something. Jesus didn't tell the disciples that if you merely have faith, he didn't say if you merely have faith in your heart, then trees will automatically be uprooted or mountains will automatically move. He said if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's not always about the size. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed and you say, you say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, it will obey you. And here's my point. Don't miss the significance of words when it comes to faith. Now, some of you might be looking up here and thinking to yourself, my preacher has just lost his mind, and he's turned into one of those word of faith preachers, uh, but let me assure you that's not the case. I'm not a word of faith preacher, but I want you to listen to me. You know what I want to be? I always want to be a word of Jesus preacher. Not a word of faith preacher, but I always want to be a word of Jesus preacher. And this is what Jesus says. He could not have said it more plainly. And here's how I interpret that for my life, and here's how I think you should interpret it for your life. Our words matter when it comes to matters of faith. Our words matter when it comes to matters of faith. That means you can't talk defeat all day long and then expect to experience victory in your life. You can't talk all day long over and over again about the insurmountable problems in your life and then expect to experience the problem-solving power of God. You can't do it. That's not how it works. I'm sure all of us are familiar, at least from a historical standpoint, of Sir Edmund Hillary. He was a mountaineer and an explorer from New Zealand. His dream, even as he was a young man, was to be the first one to climb the summit of Mount Everest. His first effort ended in failure. He and his team didn't make it to the top. He went back down. He joined another expedition, tried again. That effort also ended in failure, and it ended in tragedy as one of the men in the expedition died on the mountain. Later that same year, he was speaking to an audience about the experience, and behind him on the platform was a huge picture of Mount Everest. And right in the middle of his speech, he just stopped, and he turned, and he looked at the picture, and he spoke these words, Mount Everest, you have defeated us, but I will return, and I will defeat you, because you can't get any bigger, but I can. And then on May the 29th, 1953, he did what no one had ever done before, and he was the first man to climb the summit of Mount Everest. He spoke to the mountain and then he defeated the mountain. Let me just, let me, let me make sure that we understand that that's not just from history. Let me use an illustration from the Bible. Let's go back to the story of David and Goliath. Again, one of our favorite stories in the Bible. You know, when David went down into the valley of Elah to face off against Goliath, he was armed only with a slingshot and five smooth stones. But before he 
slung that first stone that felled the giant Goliath, he spoke words of faith. I'm going to put them on the screen. You can see him. He said to Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He said, this day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. He said, today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. He said, today all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is not the Lord's, or excuse me, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You know what he did? He spoke words of faith. Let me ask you a question. How do you speak to the giants in your life? We all have them. They come in different forms and shapes and sizes. How do you speak to the giants in your life? What words do you say to the mountains in your life? How do you address the problems and the challenges and the tests and the trials of your life? I'm telling you this morning, after you have settled the question of what you're going to believe in, you choose what you believe in, you say, I'm going to stake my life on it. This is the first part of having congruent faith. After you choose, after that question is settled, what you're going to believe in, where you're going to put your faith, you need to speak up. You need to speak up. We need to speak words of faith about what's going on in our life. This is what we need to do. This is how we have a greater faith. When I was sick, and it's been almost five years ago now, I was going through my treatment, and it was brutal. And I could come home from the hospital, and I couldn't even get out of the bed after I was done. And I prayed all the time because I didn't know what the future held. My family prayed all the time. I know you prayed for me all the time. I didn't know if I was going to live or die. But I would find time every day, multiple times a day, and I would speak these words out loud. I would just say, even if I didn't feel it in my heart in the moment because I was so sick, I would say, I believe, I believe, I believe. I would say it over and over again. Those are my words of faith. And then I would say, I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor. And those were my words of faith. You understand what I'm saying? Don't miss the significance of words when it comes to our faith. I'm not necessarily a believer in the name and claim it kind of a theology that some preachers preach, and I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm not a word of faith preacher, but I always want to be a word of Jesus preacher. And Jesus talked about speaking to the tree. He talked about speaking to the mountain. And I believe in the significance of our words when it comes to faith. Write down next to number three. Remember that faith is not a standalone quality. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to do this last point really quickly because I'm about out of time. Jesus, remember I told you the context for this passage, is Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kind of qualities that need to be reflected in their lives. And the first thing he talked about was the importance and the power of influence because he talked about how some people can cause others to stumble by their example and their influence. And then remember he talked to them about the importance of forgiveness. And he went so far as to say, even if your brother sins against you seven times a day, if seven times he comes back and asks you for forgiveness, you are required, obligated to forgive. And then after he taught about faith in verse 6, he talked about how they need to serve with an attitude of humility. They need to serve as, that's a summary of those of verses of 7 through 10. They need to serve with an attitude of humility. Well, I read all of that together in context. And, and what that tells me is that faith is not a standalone quality. This is another part of having congruent faith. Faith demonstrated corresponding with every part of your life. Because you can't be a person of great faith and live like the devil. 
You can't be a person of great faith and just do whatever you want with absolutely no care or concern to obedience to the Word of God. You can't do that. If you're doing that, if you're one of those people, you're one of those people who says you're a Christian, you go around talking about faith when it's convenient, but then you live in complete disobedience to the truth of God's Word, you're not living great faith. I hope you know that this morning. You're not. That's not how it works. You can't be a person of great faith and then, for example, have an in, an and an influence in your life that causes other people to sin. Have an example that influences other people to sin. That's not how it works. You can't be a person of great faith and, for example, refuse to forgive somebody when they offend you. That's not how it works. You can't be a person of great faith and live your life filled with pride and selfishness. That is not how it works. Faith is not a standalone quality. Faith needs to be reflected by the way we live our lives. You know, one of the interesting things about this passage is that when Luke writes this story, the word he uses for faith in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S is the English rendering. And an interesting thing about that word is that in other places in the New Testament, it's translated not just as faith, but other places it's translated as faithfulness. Why? Because New Testament writers understood that faith and faithfulness went hand in hand. What you say you believe goes hand in hand with how you act That's why a little later in the New Testament, in James chapter 2 and verse 18, James writes and says, well, let's just put it up on the screen. And he says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by, say that with me, what I do, what I do. Faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. Listen to me this morning. Faith is not a standalone quality. Now, I can stand up here today and tell you that I I can say this with integrity. I have a deep, deep longing in my heart to have a great faith. How about you? I want to have a great faith. But I need to understand right from the teaching of Jesus today that great faith is congruent faith. Great faith happens in our lives when we choose the right thing to believe in, and when we choose it, we stake our life on it. Great faith happens in our lives when we're willing to speak words of faith, not words of defeat, not words of helplessness and hopelessness, but words of faith as we go through life. And great faith happens when we are willing to make our faith visible in everything we do. That is how to have great faith. It's not always about the size of your faith. Don't miss the importance of words when it comes to faith. And faith will never be a standalone quality. It's got to be a part of every part of our lives. You want to have a great faith today? I hope you do. I hope you do. This is how it happens. I don't have all the answers when it comes to faith. I'm not correct in everything that I think at times. I'm always still growing in my study, but I'm looking at these words coming straight from the mouth of Jesus And we need to embrace him with all of our hearts. Remember, everything that falls within the will of God is possible to those who believe. But not everything. This is how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty. Not everything falls within the will of God. And that's where we have faith as well.